thank you for taking the time to listen to this life-changing message from the ministry of Faith Bible Chapel. We hope this message will encourage you in all parts of your life. At the end of this message, you will hear more information on how to contact our church family, as well as directions for you to visit us for any of our worship services. Until then, join us for the service in progress. Summer of Parables, we're making our way through several of the parables as we go through the summer. Today we're going to deal with a parable in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Matthew 13, though, 35, tells us this. He said, I will open my mouth in parables. This is Jesus speaking. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. It's interesting that it wasn't until two years into Jesus' ministry that he began to speak in parables. Now, why he didn't speak, that, that's a whole another teaching time before that. But there was a purpose to begin to speak with parables his last year of ministry. So he began to teach. It's an illustrative story. It's taking a familiar idea, like we'll talk about here in a moment, a wedding feast, a familiar idea, something familiar to the audience. It's taking that to help us understand or grasp something that's unfamiliar or a truth that might be hidden within that familiar story. And that's Jesus was, he was the king of doing all that kind of teaching. Today we're going to deal with the wise and the foolish virgins. Matthew chapter 25, beginning with verse 1. Follow along with me. We'll read about this parable. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps, or torches if you will, went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise, they took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all the virgin, virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, this particular teaching, or this sermon, if you will, we're in the middle of it. It actually begins back in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3. And it was in response to a question that the disciples had. Picture this, if you will. Jesus is down in Jerusalem, the very last days on this earth. And he's down there. And as they're making their way through Jerusalem, he's with his disciples, following him around. They were in the temple teaching all day, various teachings, chapter 24. 
And they come to the end of that time when Jesus is about ready to move out of the city. And as he's moving out of the city, the disciples said to Jesus, and they try to get his attention, do you see this beautiful temple that we worship in? And of course, it was a beautiful temple. It was, it was, a, it was the biggest building in Jerusalem, and it, it just was seen by everyone. So the temple, do you see it? And, and Jesus' response was this. He said, not one stone will be left upon another. In other words, this building you're telling me about is going to be destroyed. Well, that shocked them somewhat, and they thought about it for a while. And then they said, as Jesus made his way out of the city, he goes over to the Mount of Olives. It's only less than an hour walk from the temple area to the Mount of Olives. As they get to the Mount of Olives, Jesus is responding to their question. And this question was, tell us, when will these things be? In other words, you say this building's going to be destroyed. When will these things be? So here's the answer. Bottom line answer. It could be a long one or it could be a short one. Here's the short of that answer. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36 says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. The answer is nobody knows when these things will be. No one knows exactly when it will happen. Again, in verse 42 of chapter 24, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. Verse 44 of that same chapter 24, therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And again in chapter 24, verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him at an hour that he is not aware of. And then verse 13 of our text, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Isn't it interesting that Jesus not only repeats himself so often in that one chapter, that one setting, but he does this at the end of his ministry. Could it be, and I believe it is, is that Jesus wanted to leave his disciples and all of us with one final word, and that is Jesus is going to return. When he returns, no one really will know. Now, you'll know the general time. There are certain things that are going to happen that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 24 that you could see with your visible eyes. You should be able to discern a general time or feeling when he comes. But the exact moment, you're not going to know. Other scriptures describe it as a thief in the night or unexpectedly or suddenly. It's just going to happen. Now, Listen carefully to this. This parable is a parable with the intent of teaching us the suddenness and the unexpectedness of the coming of the Lord. So the parable does this, number one. It teaches us of the suddenness, how suddenly it's going to happen. But at the same time, it's a call to us to prepare so that we are not caught in that unexpected moment unprepared for His coming. So it does two things. It tells us and reminds us that the Lord is coming. It's going to be quick. No one's going to know. Thief in the night. But it is also warning us 
and teaching us, be ready. Get prepared. Make sure that everything is order. Your house is in order. Now, verse 1, we just read it. Starts with the word then. That's a big word. That's why it's up there big. It's a big word. It says a lot. Then. So, it, after Jesus talked about the general signs that will be happening, things will be happening around his return, just prior to his return, as he's talking about, he says, then, and that takes us to a time. So when you say the word then, it's taking us to a time. It's the time when the Lord comes, the actual time, not just the surrounding events up to, but when the Lord actually comes back. So it's a parable to illustrate the time period of the second coming. That's the intent of the opening verse, verse 1. It takes us to a time of the coming of the Lord and calls us for readiness and preparedness and alertness. And that's the reason we're sharing it here today. It's not only to remind you of the second return of Christ, but also to kind of like stir us with the question that should be in all of our minds, are we ready? Am I ready? Is my house in order? Why? Because it's going to be unexpected. It's going to be sudden. So I'm not going to have time to think about it later. You might not have time to think about and come up with an answer or even take an action to what I just said. It will come so quickly, you will not have time. It'll happen in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. It's just going to happen quickly. So none of us can afford to say, which I've said foolishly in my BC days, you know, that foolish statements that I would make about it. So, the first time that Jesus came, the world wasn't ready. Although we have literally dozens of scriptures. We had the prophets, the psalmist, all of them speaking hundreds of years ago, before the, Jesus' first coming, before his birth, they were talking about. They talked about John the Baptist as a forerunner to Jesus' coming. They talked about Bethlehem and where he would be born. How more specific can you get? It talked about the Virgin Mary that would give birth. It talked that he would come from the line of David. He would live around Galilee. He would have great power. All those things Jesus did. It's almost undeniable that Jesus fit the description of what the writers were talking about. It was there. It was evident, but yet they missed it. The Bible tells us that Jesus was in the world. The world was made by him, but the world knew him not. It's amazing. So this is a parable that warns the, war, warns the world not to let this happen again because it's going to be a little bit different. The parable is not complex. Matter of fact, I'm going to use mostly the rest of this message, to let the parable speak for itself. But it's not complex. It's meant to teach us. It's meant to teach us Jesus is coming. 
It's meant to teach us he's coming to judge sinners and reward the righteous. His coming is sudden and unexpected. Everyone should be prepared. This time, there's no second chance. Did you hear me? This parable tells us that the door will be shut. This parable indicates that the day of opportunity is over when that door shuts. Now, the scene is a wedding. Jesus uses a wedding to teach this parable. It's a typical Jewish wedding in a typical Jewish village. But in the village, a wedding was a celebrated moment. It was the highlight of the year when they would have weddings because you'd have family and friends, extended family, you'd have strangers. Everybody would be celebrating in the village because they were small at the time, the wedding feast. Now the wedding, the Jewish wedding, you need to know this, it's important. There are two major parts to a typical Jewish wedding. The first part is the parents coming together or the fathers coming together and making an agreement with one another that their children would marry each other. This could be made when they're young, it could be made when they're older, but this agreement, how many saw a fiddler on the roof? You know, but we had an agreement. <laughs> you remember that line? You have to think about it. It was a time, it was an agreement that was made. Now it was usually made a year before the actual wedding took place. So one year prior to that, they were pledged to one another. So during that year, the groom would have the responsibility, okay, now that I'm pledged to this individual, it's my responsibility to get a home ready. So he either builds an addition onto his folks' home or his own home or something, he buys a piece of land. He's getting ready to take his bride so she has a place to live. In John chapter 14 and verse 1, there's a beautiful picture where Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. In verse 2 and 3, he said, I'm going to go, but I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. He's going to prepare a place for us. Jesus leaving is almost this year of engagement time where he's leaving to prepare a place for you. If he prepares a place, he's going to come back to receive us unto himself that we will be with him forever. That's the picture that's being used there again. So Jesus is preparing a place, a mansion, if you will, during this time. But in the meantime, we are pledged to him. If you receive Christ as your Savior, it's as if you were married. It was a legal contract when that pledge was made, as if they were married. If they were to break that engagement, they would have to divorce so that's how serious it was. It was legal. We, when you receive Christ as your Savior, it's as if you moved into this binding vow agreement that you're married to Christ. And that he's left for a while, and Paul describes him leaving for a while, and here's what he says. He said, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. In other words, keep yourself pure during this period because one day when you are married at the marriage supper of the Lamb, you come to him, let it be that you're pure. You kept yourself pure for him. In other words, keep yourself from the things of the world and draw and be attracted to him. Joseph and Mary is another picture. When Joseph and Mary had this legal binding pledge agreement, and that's why when he found that she was pregnant, I mean, he didn't know what to do. 
He's going to have to divorce her is what he had to do. But that was the period that they lived in, that engagement period. So there was great anticipation. The bridesmaid, they're all there. So they have been chosen. So the bride, she picks her friends and she gets them all. And she said, you know, it's going to be a wedding. We don't know. Because you see, the thing, it wasn't a year that the husband, the, the groom at that time, when he was ready, then he would go. When things are ready in heaven, Jesus is going to come. So when he was ready, he would go get her. So these 10 virgins had torches. It was a pole, if you will, with cloth at the top of it, but probably some kind of binding, whether it be metal or some other binding on the cloth to hold it together. They all had torches. And uh, the torches were lit, but the way it stayed lit is because oil was poured on them. So you would wear a pouch that had oil in it so that the torch, you could pour the oil on it, light it, and it would stay lit. When the oil would dry up, you'd pour more oil on it, and you could keep the torch going all the time. That's the picture we have here. But the question is, who are these bridesmaids? Who are these girls? Now, it's going to get real quiet in the next 10 minutes here, I guarantee you, quieter than it is now. They're professed Christians. Those who claim to belong to Christ. They're gathered and they're waiting for the Lord. Those who say they know Christ and they're anticipating His coming. They're aware of it. They say they believe and they know all about the wedding. They know the time is near. They won't deny it. They say, they say they've made their preparations. They show an outward mark of watching for the coming of the bridegroom. They might even talk to it about it, to people. They show the outward marks of readiness. They show the outward marks of commitment to Jesus. They are part of the believing community. They're gathered together as bridesmaids, 10 of them. They profess to love Christ's appearance. They profess to hear the gospel and believe. If you were to line all 10 of them up, they are not very easily distinguished. You can't tell one from the other. They look alike, but they're not alike. There are five wise and there are five foolish. And only God searches the heart. Picture is, people could walk in here and we all participate in a worship service. We all participate in praying together for the message. We participate. We go home and you really couldn't tell. Unless you intimately know that person, you don't, you can't tell where they actually are. But God knows exactly where we're at. Outwardly, they're the same. Inwardly, they're very different. God knows those who were truly His. The Lord knows how to read our character and He marks our place. Here's what distinguished them. Their preparedness. The thing that distinguished them is whether or not they were prepared. Here's where the wisdom and the foolish manifest themselves. The foolish took torches but not enough oil. They had the torches, but they didn't have enough oil. The wise 
had the oil. The fools made no preparation. They didn't even bother to have a pouch of oil. It was all outside. It was external. The most necessary thing in that whole setup of a torch is the oil. What good is it, the pole? What good is the cloth? What good is the fire? If you don't have the oil to keep it going, it causes it to burn. All made profession, but only five had oil. They're the same on the outside, but they had different hearts. Some were prepared and others were unprepared. Now, the oil, you could call a lot of things, but I'm going to try to zero it in here. Here's the oil. The oil is the saving grace of Jesus Christ. It has everything to do with salvation, true salvation. True salvation meaning a transformed life. True salvation meaning a born-again experience where God in a miraculous way enters one's life and a miracle takes place and that seed of life is planted and you begin to live. You are changed. You are transformed. You no longer desire the things of the world. You don't desire the things that will take you away from God. Matter of fact, you are now more attracted to the things that draw you near to God. Your priorities change. Everything changes. It's a transformed life. You experience the grace of God. You experience the Spirit of God coming in your life and working that transformation in you. Doesn't mean you have arrived. Doesn't mean you're perfect. From the moment it happens, you're not instantly perfect. No, it just means that that life, that seed has been planted and now it's going to bring forth fruit. A truly born again experience. That's why the thing that is disputed amongst even evangelicals or has been down through the last five decades or so is the word born again. You, you could say, well, I'm a Christian and it didn't bother some people, but you say you're born again, oh, you're one of them. Well, what's one of them? Oh, you're one of those real Christians? 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5 says, in the last days, there will some will have a form, say form, of godliness, but denying its power. They deny the power of God working in their life. They, they deny, they don't acknowledge that the Spirit of God is, is in them. And when they don't acknowledge them, they're, they're unprepared. The foolish virgins, outwardly, they were attached. They were committed intellectually. They were committed socially. They were committed religiously. They were religious folks, no doubt. They heard the scriptures, so that's why they knew about the wedding feast. They knew about the second return of Christ because they had heard the scriptures. It's not that they're denying any of that, but they had no light. They have no life. The faith that comes by saving grace, it produces a change. And when it doesn't produce a change, that faith, James says, is dead. What good is it? So the purpose of the parable is us not to be caught in such unpreparedness when the Lord comes. Now let me say something. The church is filled with unredeemed, unprepared people. According to this parable, 
church is filled. Now, would I pick 50-50? I don't think we'd go by that as a guy, but I think there is a percentage of people that seem like they are part of. You can't distinguish them. You can't tell on the outside. They even sing the songs. They might even read the scriptures, but their life is not transformed. Their life is not changed. It doesn't glorify God. doesn't do any of that. Their life so they're unprepared. So percentage-wise, there's a percentage of people that come to church every Sunday, both here and other places that are not prepared for Jesus to return. And they might even think that they are prepared. You're not prepared by just joining the flock. You're not prepared by just saying you are a Christian. You're not prepared because you... You, you like to at least hang around with some people that are not as bad as other people. That doesn't prepare you. The only thing that prepares you is when we humble ourselves and admit that we are a sinner and that we need a Savior and we invite Jesus Christ into our heart. Grace comes. And we're saved. In Matthew chapter 13, there's another parable. It's called the parable of the weed, wheat and the weeds. Let me just read it because it's important to the message today, the point of the message. Jesus told them another story, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. That night, as the workers slept, the enemy came and he planted weeds among the wheat. Then he slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmers went out to him, farmer workers went out to him and said, sir, the field where you planted the good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? And he responded, the enemy has done this. Should we pull the weeds out? No. You'll uproot the weed if you do. Let both together grow until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. The same truth. At the very end, when Jesus returns, then Jesus will distinguish between the wheat and the weeds. And there'll be a separation that will shock a lot of people and wonder why they're being tied up in a bundle to be burned and the others are gone on to eternity to live with Christ. It's a reality. The church is filled with unredeemed and unprepared people. Now, whether or not you meet the Lord in death or you meet the Lord at his coming, it doesn't matter. You got to be prepared for both. In death, what I mean is simply that Jesus tarries and people die. I attended a funeral, Bill Armstrong, a former senator, and also the president for the last 10 years of Colorado Christian University was held yesterday. And as I sat and I watched it, that, it was such a glory to God to watch here testimony after testimony here a man who dedicated his heart to the Lord. He did service for our country. He did service for, for our university. He loved God. You could tell. I mean, there's no question he was prepared. No doubt. Just graduated. But I can't tell you how many times I officiated a funeral when we did not know where that person was or that we knew for sure he wasn't. I guess you don't know for sure. God only knows the hearts. You're grasping for words, folks. 
You're grasping for encouraging words for those who are left behind. But yet the reality is that there are some people just not prepared. And I don't care what kind of words you can, you cannot change that. When you die, you die. When the Lord comes back, he comes back. It's sudden. The bridegroom comes when they expect him not. <laughs> but you know, it does seem like it's later and later and later and later, doesn't it? It does. I prayed for the Lord's return for, since 1971. I really believed it was going to be 1972. I truly believe 73 had to be yet. And 75, and 85, and 95. And to, I believe this year could be the year of the return, but it might not be. Verse 5 says, when the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now, that's been hard to understand. Let me try to put my words to this, understand. That's, they all slept. Were they all sluggards? No, I don't think that's what this is saying at all. They all slept. They were all human beings. <laughs> we're all human beings. We have our shortcomings. We work. We, but here's the difference, you see. So there are going to be times as we're waiting for the Lord, there's going to be times of rest, times of sleep that we'll need. But here, there's nothing wrong with sleep, but listen carefully. But the wrong is if you're not prepared for what is going to wake you out of your sleep. Let me say that again. There's nothing wrong with sleep, but wrong if you're not prepared for what is going to waken you out of your sleep. In other words, that wakening is going to be like this. It's going to be a cry. It's going to be a trumpet. It's going to be a shout. Whoa, you are awake. What are you awakened unto? You're ready. You're awakened with a preparedness in your heart. It doesn't matter. But a lot of people are awakened and say, wait a minute. I don't have, I need more time. So, their people were asleep. Verse 6 says, there was a cry at midnight. I find this interesting. What wedding takes place at midnight? I mean, really, in all reality, none. So, the point is being made here is going to come at an unexpected time. Who expects a wedding to be at midnight? Now, don't walk away from here, Pastor George said. Jesus is coming at midnight. He didn't give us the day, but he said it's going to be midnight. So we got it down to midnight now. No, that's not it. The wise and the foolish were asleep. The cry at midnight. Simply saying it's unexpected time. Now, notice verse 7. It says, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their torches. They all arose. They were trying to trim, getting that cloth ready. But the foolish said to the wise, they realized, we don't have oil. Give us some of your oil for our gone out. And the wise said, no. Now, this isn't a parable on selfishness. It's not that they were selfish at all. They said, not enough for us and you to go. You see, because you can't share grace. Because your parents were believers, doesn't mean you're a believer. Because your best friends are believers, because you go to the best church, none of that makes you a believer. There's only one thing, and that is saving grace, and you can't share it with others. As much as I'd want to escort you into heaven, I can take you to the gate, and I can introduce you to Christ, but you have to make the decision whether or not you want it. While they went, 
the bridegroom came. Those who were ready, what did they do? They went in, the door was shut. The others who were out had to come back and they had knock on the door. Lord, Lord opened to us and the Lord said, I don't know you. Hmm. Verse 13, but watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son, a man, is coming. There is one warning after another. It's not that the scriptures lack the warnings. Luke chapter 21, verse 34. I'll end with this verse. It says here that we're, to, we're not only to watch, and I'll have to go back here, but take heed to yourself and be on your guard. I put it in the Amplified here. Lest your hearts be overburdened and depressed or weighed down with the giddiness and the headache and the nausea of self-indulgence, drunkenness, and worldly worries and cares pertaining to the business of this life. And lest that day come upon you suddenly like a trap or a noose. It's going to be sudden, folks. Now, I would be slack in my duties as a pastor, as your pastor. Not to tell you this part of the scriptures. I, I know there's a pressure that we, we want to hear something that will make us feel good. Well, this ought to make you feel good. If you get ready with Jesus coming, then you feel good about his coming back. You're going to live throughout eternity with him. That's a, that's a good news. But there's a soberness about these parables, and there ought to be because Jesus was serious about eternity. You know, his death on the cross was a serious thing. Someone would give their life so that you might have life, and yet we reject it. It's a free gift that's open to every one of us, but you have to accept it. Will you today accept Jesus? be ready. In 1830, there was a gentleman by the name of George Wilson. He was arrested for mail theft. And I think during the arrest or during the robbery that took place, someone was killed in that. And the penalty was hanging, and that was what the judgment was. Andrew Jackson was the president at that time, and he had some influence from their friends, and he pardoned George Wilson, but he refused the pardon. The authorities were puzzled that should Wilson be freed or should he be hanged, they asked themselves. They consulted with the Chief Justice, John Marshall, who was the Chief Justice at the time, who handed down this decision, and I quote, a pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must be hanged, and he was. Would you stand with me, please? We hope that this message has spoken something personal to you. If you would like more information about our church family or service times, please call us at 303-424-2121 or visit us at our website, www.fbci.org. Faith Bible Chapel currently meets in our Family Worship Center located on the corner of 62nd Avenue and Ward Road.